Welcome back to the program. Living in the West, it's easy to forget that one-sixth of the world's population subsists without stable sources of food, medical care, or housing. More than a billion people around the world are believed to live on a dollar a day or less. While the circumstances leading to that kind of poverty are varied and complicated, the situations faced by the planet's poorest people are desperately familiar. Now we get an on-the-ground look at that world in a new work by my guest, Thomas Nazario. He's the founder of the nonprofit called The Forgotten International, and it is my pleasure to welcome him here to talk about his new work, Living on a Dollar a Day, The Lives and Faces of the World's Poor. Thomas, thanks so much for joining us. Oh, no, thank you for having me. It's a delight to have you here. We should also mention, and, and I failed to in the introduction, the, the amazing photographs of Pulitzer Prize-winning photographer Renee Beyer that are part of this book. Talk a little bit about the book and what you two set out to accomplish here. Well, the purpose behind the book was uh, just uh, essentially grew, grew out of my notion that we spend an awful lot of time talking about celebrities and wealthy people and those that are rich and famous and beautiful and not enough time spent on really a very, very large segment of the world's population and those that are live in extreme poverty, those that are largely forgotten, and those that really make up a big, big part of our human family. So I wanted to draw some attention to that aspect of our of our globe and our, our human family and, and decided that the best way to do it was to hire a very good photographer to travel the world and to capture their lives and tell their stories through uh, words and pictures. And where in the world did you go? Talk about the places that really moved you and where these stories really take place. Well, we went to 10 different countries. We selected those countries uh, thinking about ethnicity, thinking about the kinds of problems that exist in those countries, thinking a little bit about uh, uh, whereabouts they were. We ended up in four different continents, uh, again, to travel to 10 countries and uh, tried to tell a variety of different kinds of stories, but all stories about, uh, of course, uh, some of the poorest people in the world, often women and children. And uh, we wanted to not only talk in the book about really the, the social issues, the economic issues, the political issues, the medical issues that surround global poverty, but we wanted to capture lives. We wanted to take photographs of how individuals get through their day, how it affects their families, what kinds of dreams do they have for their children, uh, what happens when something goes wrong, and... Uh, and really give people a picture of the lives of these individuals uh, through these stories. So the book captures about 45 different profiles of, of individuals, families, living in different settings and just getting through their day. Talk a little bit about context, because you said at the beginning uh, the things that people in the West talk about, the things that they read about, popular culture, etc., it's very difficult, I think, for so many people in the West to really understand the full context of the developing world and of the people that you profile in the book. Yeah, well, uh, I guess a way of approaching this is, is simply by saying that, yeah, as you said, slightly over a billion people live on less than a dollar a day. And if we take that escalated to $2 a day, about... Uh, 2.3 billion people live on less than $2 a day. Uh, if we take about, let's say, 2.5 billion people, about 55% of those 2.5 billion people uh, are subsistence farmers. 
they live off the land, usually land they don't own, but they farm. And they pray that crops come in. However, if, weather's, if weather change, if their soil is poor, if, if a, a drought comes along or if a war breaks out, uh, these individuals live on the edge of life and death. They are what we call the extreme poor. And the extreme poor are people who live on the edge of life and death. Uh, many of the world's poor die very, very young in life. Uh, they live an average of about 39, 40 years. And it's because of all of the difficulties they face. Uh, so uh, not only do they have jobs that break their back and, and work them to death, and uh, but they also have no money for any kinds of medication. They often live too far from a doctor to ever get to a doctor in time to save themselves or their children. They drink polluted water. Uh, they're susceptible to all sorts of disease. They often are born without immunizations, so so on and so forth. Uh, it's one of the reasons why uh, these individuals, of course, uh, simply die relatively young. And, and the truth is that poverty kills around the world. And, and one of the things that I find so disturbing, even when I listen to uh, fairly progressive radio shows or things like that or television or what have you, is that we spend an awful lot of time not only talking about the rich and the famous, but also an awful lot of time talking about various kinds of political conflicts that exist in the world when they only take a fraction of the number of people that poverty takes each year. So maybe we have to bring about more attention to, to this kind of issue rather than other kinds of issues. What, if any, progress is being made, because we do hear that some progress is being made in parts of the developing world, particularly in Africa, with respect to this, the depths and this level of poverty. Well, you're absolutely right. Uh, a lot of progress has been made. Uh, the truth of the matter is that about 40 years ago, maybe a little less than that, maybe about 36, 37 years ago, we were losing about 40,000 children a day to uh, various kinds of illnesses that could have been prevented or hunger, uh, and of course that can be prevented, uh, simply because they were too poor to live, 40,000 children a day. Now, today that number has been reduced to about 19,000. Uh, so that's a huge step in the right direction, and it's largely because the United Nations has really gotten involved in global poverty. Uh, it's been one of their major issues. Uh, it, it was a, you know, it, it, it was targeted as something that we wanted to fix vis-a-vis -vis the Millennium Report that came out 15 years ago, and we've been making a lot of progress in that direction. And the, the other thing is that if we look at even places like Africa that haven't made that much progress, they still are far more far better off than, than they used to be. There are more children in schools in Africa. There are more kids getting immunized. There are less diseases taking children very, very young. There are more countries in Africa that at least have some semblance of uh, a, a democratic society. Uh, and, uh, you know, we are making progress, but it's it's been relatively slow, and we have a long way to go. Is technology playing any role in that progress? Well, I have to believe it is. Uh, not only do we have uh, new kinds of inventions, uh, new products that are helping the poor, including phones now that can transfer money to impoverished villages and homes and families around the world, uh, because 
in many places like Africa or in Southeast Asia, they've accept, they, for example, have skipped a generation of phones. They've gone from no phones to cell phones. And these cell phones have, uh, of course, apps now that help them. There are a variety of other things that have now been created that, that help the extreme poor, including filtering systems that clean up water very, very quickly and efficiently. Uh, so that's happened. Also, we now, ha we now have a new class of wealthy people in the world. And though many of them don't do enough, there are now wealthy people like Bill Gates and others uh, who are, you know, providing most of their riches to try to solve the problems of the poor. And so there's been some progress in that direction as well. What danger does violence pose? Well, uh, you know, there are two different kinds of violence, I think, when we think about it. There are, of course, these conflicts that break out all over the world. And, uh, and when they break out, they usually push people off their property. People are displaced and either become refugees or just parts of displaced populations in various countries. They lose access to the kinds of things they need to survive. They end up in camps. And, uh, and of course, uh, those are the kinds of people that we hear about in the news that are 40,000 people in a camp somewhere in the world that are waiting for some kind of relief. And, of course, that takes a devastating toll on, on, on them, their, their children, and, and, of course, any kinds of aspirations they may have in the future in terms of getting back to their homes and getting their kids back in school. So it's, it's, those are huge setbacks in terms of what happens to the poor. The other kind of violence that uh, is, is devastating to the poor is domestic violence, uh, the violence that occurs at home and uh, often to women, which drives them out of their home, which impoverishes them further, which impoverishes their children. And, this, of course, this happens all over the world, particularly in South America, where... Uh, where a lot of women are, are constantly abused in, in the household and, and, and have no real access to uh, uh, making enough money to support their children when they're kicked out. Talk a little bit, Thomas, about the personal stories and some of the things that the many people that you interviewed told you about living in this kind of environment. Well, I mean, there's such a variety of stories, uh, but uh, one of the things that... Uh, you know, there, there are two things that, that I think I remember most about the kinds of things they told us. Once, one was that many of them had hopes and dreams for their children, that above everything else, they were willing to go through all sorts of torture in their life in terms of the kinds of jobs and the kinds of hours they worked and so on and so forth, if it meant a better life for their children in the future, if they could keep their kids in school, so on and so forth, if it, if, if it would give them some access to medical care whatever, but they wanted their children to lead a better life than them. And sometimes that happens, and sometimes it didn't. But uh, that was, uh, I guess, the number one aspiration that most of the people had. The, the second thing that I found quite troubling was the kinds of jobs that many of these individuals had to take simply because they have no options in life. Uh, we uh, we met children that live on uh, an e-waste dump site in Ghana where these children have been abandoned or pushed out uh, because their families couldn't afford them. They live uh, on a dump site uh, in a little shack. Uh, they're essentially orphans. They protect themselves by uh, just staying close together and hopefully not getting stolen or raped or something else. And they, uh, they essentially burn uh, old computers so that 
pieces of metal can fa- fall out of these old computers and they can collect that metal and then recycle that and make maybe you know 50 cents or a dollar or a dollar 50 a day to try to survive uh that's their whole life in the process of burning these computers their lungs get full of uh, all sorts of carbons and uh, again they probably won't live much longer than you know 25 years as a result and many of those children have been there for years and again it's because they have no options uh, you know there are we met a gentleman in India who's part of the Dalek population in India who's used pretty much, uh, well, I'll back up a second. In India, they use human beings to go through sewer pipes and clean out sewers that are filled with um, human feces. And he goes into these pipes without any kind of protection to clear them out. And, you know, there are 8,000 individuals like that in the city of New Delhi. Uh, about 200 die each year because of infections they receive. And uh, again, uh, he's been doing this for 15 years. Uh, he has three children. He makes on the average of uh, $1.80 a day. And, uh, and that's how he survives. And he says, you know, he has no hope for the future. He just hopes that his children don't have to do this kind of work. Talk about the difference in seeing this kind of poverty in countries like India, for example, where there is also great developmental progress and great wealth side by side. Uh, Well, it's very disturbing because you're absolutely right. There are pockets of great wealth in in India, especially in the big cities. And uh, at the same time, you can walk a few blocks away and see the most desperate poverty that you can find anywhere in the world. Uh, you know, the, the truth of the matter is that in many countries, the rich and super rich are not or haven't really gotten used to the notion of uh, being philanthropic. They don't share to the extent that the rich do in the United States or in, East, uh, or in uh, Northern Europe. And uh, that will probably come someday, and certainly some of the rich in those countries do quite well. But uh, there are great divides. You know, India has almost one-third of the world's poorest people. Uh, and at the same time, it has about 45 billionaires in that country now. And that's a, a big improvement uh, from what they were looking at many, many years ago. But nevertheless, uh, you know, one of the, the richest individual in India uh, has in the neighborhood of $40 billion dollars. And he recently built himself a billion-dollar home in Mumbai. Uh, the home is uh, something like 27 stories high. Uh, it's got a parking garage for 160 cars. Uh, it's enormous, of course. And uh, at the same time, you know, we found an individual living about five blocks away who lives on the street, and uh, he's a cobbler. He hopes to fix your shoes if you happen to walk by where he sleeps and lives his entire life on the sidewalk. And we asked him, you know, what happens when no one comes by and gives you any business? And he says, I eventually go to sleep and dream about a better day tomorrow. And I said, well, what if tomorrow comes and you still have nothing? And then he says, you know, I go across the street and I eat the leaves off the tree. And that's the life that he leads as opposed to, you know, billionaires that have so much money and so much wealth and, frankly, in many cases, don't even know what to do with it. It does make one wonder what the solution to all of this is when you see that even in countries that are 
seeing tremendous economic development that it doesn't really filter down to the general population. No, in many of those countries, the the, the tax structures are either non-existent or, 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 or warped in one way and really don't encourage giving. In, in many of those countries, uh, uh, it's just not part of the culture, at least not yet. Uh, Bill Gates and uh, Warren Buffett are trying to do something about that by encouraging people to give you know, 50% of their wealth away before they die. Uh, and they're now recruiting individuals from all over the world that will make that pledge. So uh, that's, of course, one of the avenues to try to uh, equalize some of the uh, disparities in the world. But uh, there are others as well, but certainly some of the rich are taking it upon themselves to, to make a difference in, in, that, in that regard. In an overall sense, in a life sense, how were you and Renee affected by this project? Well, you know, to some extent, Renee was up close and personal. Uh, she uh, she spent hours in 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 some of the worst slums in the world. Uh, she uh, documented a lot of the stories that are in the book. Uh, I've done an awful lot of traveling over the years, and of course, run a foundation that hired Renee to do this. I did some traveling with her. I think she was quite moved. She had never seen some of this kind of poverty before. I think the thing that touched her the most is the story in the book about the woman who starves one child so she can use that child as kind of a, a, a begging instrument and gather sympathy from individuals so she can use whatever money she gathers vis-a-vis -vis begging to feed her four other children. And we discovered that child, and the child was uh, two years old or almost two and a half years old and only weighed nine pounds. And that was quite shocking to her. It broke her heart. We actually did eventually save that child. That child is well today. But uh, it's these kinds of things that uh, are incredibly disturbing. And uh, she, of course, has been a photojournalist for years, and she's kind of experienced this. And in one way or another, you have to just toughen up and go through it. And uh, she was quite good at doing just that. Thomas Nazario, the book is Living on a Dollar a Day, The Lives and Faces of the World's Poor. Thomas, I thank you so much for spending time with us today. Oh, no, it was my pleasure, and thank you for doing this. Thank you. We'll take a break. I'll be right back. <laughs> 